It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m. and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Busy Being Black is the podcast exploring how we live in the fullness of our queer black lives. These are conversations at our intersections and an opportunity for us to hear firsthand from others in our community how they have learned and are learning to thrive. If you like what you hear, please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe. Doing so lets others like us hear the voices amplified here. In their poem, Massage Noir, C-Sharp says, Maybe mama knows I'd rather burn my leather than wear it another day for her. Would rather slice this skin in slivers, rip off my flesh like a grapefruit peel. In this poem, which explores a contentious relationship between mother and child, between black skin and freedom, C touches upon one of the profound conflicts queer black people contend with when confronted with the trumpeting of the importance of coming out and LGBTQ pride, telling the world where queer hardly helps us when we don't even want to live in our black skin. C Sharp is a Pushcart Prize-winning poet whose latest collection of poems, Black Cotton, is a powerful interrogation and soaring exploration of the wild and vast interior of a queer Black person coming to terms with their identity, sexuality, and race against a backdrop of rural Kansas and South England. C's work is emotionally charged, confrontational, and humorous, gut-wrenching, and healing all at the same time. And while reading through their work, I found myself on the verge of tears, or laughing in recognition, or just pausing to to catch my breath. I cannot recommend their work highly enough. We sat down at the Charleston Trust in Lewis on the invitation of outing the past to add some much needed visibility for queer black people within British LGBTQ history. The conversation that took place though was an exploration of the complicated relationship queer black people can have to an LGBTQ history that leaves us wanting and the many considerations queer black people have to make about our lives before we can even begin to think about coming out. We opened the show with a graphic account of violence against enslaved people which some may find hard to hear, so please do listen with care. I'm Josh Rivers, and I'm Busy Being Black with C-Sharp. So I'm Josh Rivers, and... um, Busy Being Black really explores what it means for us to live in the fullness of our queer black lives. How do we navigate this world 
how do we love on each other better? How do we show up for each other and ourselves um, in better ways? And so I'm really honored to share the space with you, see, um, and to add you to the compendium of voices um, that keep shining a light on, on, our, on us and our experiences. I've been thinking a lot about how we as queer black people have a conversation in a place like Charleston Trust, in a place like the UK at this time. And it's been really nagging me, as I've been telling C over the past couple of weeks, because how do you account for lives that were never meant to be accounted for meaningfully in the first place? And how do we exist fully in these spaces that weren't designed to cater for us? How do we be black and ourselves in this space? And how do we honor and account for um, lives far outside of our own? So, on the train this morning, I came across something that Zadie Smith had written about Kara Walker, who, as you probably know, has an exhibition at the moment at Tate. And I was so arrested by what Zadie thought that I ran it past C, and we decided to open the show with it, because I think it will help situate us in this moment. Kara Walker operates on the premise that when you make history truly visible, both your own and that of your people or nation, there exists a challenge to show all of it. The unholy mix, the conscious knowledge and the subconscious reaction, the traumatic history and the trauma it has created, the unprocessed and the unprocessable. Consider, for example, the case of one Thomas Thistlewood. Thistlewood was from Lincolnshire, England. He died in 1786, 47 years before Britain's Slavery Abolition Act was passed in 1833. There are no monuments to him in England, but he is notorious among Jamaicans for his 14,000-page diary documenting his time as a plantation owner on our island. A lower-middle-class man, he was an autodidact, and the recto pages of his diary are filled with a meticulous account of his enlightened interest in medicine, horticulture, religion, political theory, and much else. The other half, the verso pages, records the 3,852 acts of sex he had with his slaves and the regular vicious punishments he doled out to them, Baroque and their sadism and perversion. Once, after a particular slave had run away and been caught, Thistlewood gave him a moderate whipping, pickled him well, made Hector, another slave, shit in his mouth, immediately put a gag in while his mouth was full, and made him wear it for four or five hours. Apparently pleased with this novel punishment, he repeated it on many others. Often he flogged slaves and then washed and rubbed them in salt pickle, lime juice, and bird pepper. To punish the aforementioned Hector for losing a hoe, he whipped him and then made new Negro Joe piss in his eyes and mouth. In addition to forcing men, women, and children into the back-breaking work of cutting sugarcane, sometimes he used a byproduct of sugar for the purposes of torture put him in the Bilbo's both feet, gagged him, locked his hands together, rubbed him with molasses, and exposed him naked to the flies all day and to the mosquitoes all night. What is the correct artistic response to history like that? In what relation do we stand to our ancestors if we insist we cannot now even stand to hear or see what they themselves had no choice but to live through? This is another pointless protest. I have dressed for this protest, applied the war paint, pinned liberation buttons on my chest. Last night, I practiced in the mirror, held up my fist like it could lift the dignity of the dead. 
Admittedly, I used to make, I used to mistake injustice for not trying. But now you say, I'm just trying to be that kind of Negro. The kind who drags a sign to Suffolk Park like a torture stake, drawing lines to cross, hoisting a cross to bear. Like a martyr, Moses is setting his people free, as if blackness isn't something I need to forgive after all. So I think we're here, right? And I think the conundrum of queer black lives, but also the opportunities of queer black lives are contained within these two very distant, but very linked experiences. And so I want to thank you, C, um, because reading through Black Cotton is a bomb. <laughs> Honestly, I, I think we have similar experiences in that we both spent some time in the US, obviously, no surprises there. And I want to understand for you this experience of writing Black Cotton, this book of poems, of storytelling, of history, embodied and otherwise. And just talk to me about that process, about putting these thoughts, these histories on your pages. I think, well, I've only just realized recently that I'm more of a, a trauma-based poet. So the things I write, the things that inspire me to write, are things that are very triggering for me. Um, and so when it came to collecting these poems, I realized that it was going to be a very vulnerable process. Uh, I was going to be tackling lots of different things that I did not want to expose about myself. And, um, and not just about myself, but also the world that I live in and, and also the world that my ancestors have lived in. Mm. Um, or at least the presumed idea of mm. those experiences, because as you know, not a lot of it gets documented for us. And it, that means that we don't actually have the, the formal education that most people get about their histories. It's not search of us on a, on a silver platter. Yeah, like I just found out last night that the, the first documented drag queen in the U.S. was a former slave. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just found out about that this week, too. Like, how is it that we've lived our lives without knowing that? Mm. But we celebrate drag queens all the time in this community. Mm. And his story was there, right? It was in the archives at Columbia University. Mm. Which I found <laughs> poetic itself. But, like, how these stories that, that, are, that are there, that exist, can remain lo under lock and key, and how, and this is the conflict of, of queer black history or, or, or showing up in a space like Charleston Trust to talk about a queer black history, is how do we do that? It's not all there. No, it's not, and I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that like, we're, just, we're still creating that history today. I like to think that, you know, in the sense, me just living my best queer black life means that I am creating that history. Um, and even spaces like this where this kind of conversation is being documented will mean that people 50 years from now will be able to look at us and be like, hey, that person is queer and black just like I am. They, and I guess in a sense, we can be their role model. We can be the trailblazers of our time. I haven't actually thought about that before. No, it's, it's yeah. a lot of pressure, isn't it? Yeah, shit. Yeah. <laughs> Get used to it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm. It's a lot of weight. But... I like the idea that we, that we are leading history because it, if we don't really have our own histories to take, then why not create our own? Does that make sense? It like, does. I feel like when at school, for example, I didn't really have any idea of what it meant to be queer or black 
And so when I left America and came here, I definitely had to redefine myself and determine what does that mean for me? And obviously everyone's journey is going to be different. Everyone's experiences are going to be different from each other. But I like to think that in me exposing myself and being vulnerable about what is important to me will help the next generation, the generations after that, um, so that they don't feel as alone as I do today. I think one of the things that your work exposes for me or brings to the surface is that we're often asked to talk about queer black history as distinct from black history, as distinct mm. from LGBTQ history. Mm -hmm. And one of the poems I've asked you to um, visit with us today is Amira Bridican. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and all throughout, I'm just, I'm just struck by, why don't you read it and then we can discuss it. Yeah? Let's do that, yeah. You don't want any introductions? Mm-mm. Mm-mm, okay. Mm, they can get it. Amira Bridikin, part one. In Kansas, white boys ride their rust buckets around town to pass the time. In summertime, my melanin gets so thirsty, I need to walk everywhere, everywhere I go just to suck on the sunshine like gumdrops. Sometimes pickup trucks bark nigger bitch in my direction before screeching away in drunken fits of laughter. Whomever said home is where the heart is doesn't know the Midwestern fun that makes the Negroes fall apart in the streets. Hasn't practiced taking a joke without dying to retreat. In Kansas, the good old boys gather around a frat house ping pong table, gruff as beer-soaked pirates in sing-song crooning about the ropes they've tied to trees and throats, antidotes of crosses that burn and burn. And only one can be bothered to turn and say, maybe you should just try to lighten up. So in Kansas, I try not to step outside. I starve my melanin as if a shadow could actually lighten me up. Part two, in Sussex. There are parades held at night in November. White boys take British tiki torches to the streets and wear the wardrobes of my relatives like costumes, summoning the devil with their wicked little drums. In Sussex, a fruit seller will ask if I am a Kenyan. When I, am, when I say, no, I'm not a Kenyan, the fruit seller will ask what percentage of me is not a Kenyan. I will shrug like my mama, bugging over arithmetic that nobody knew to check before we swallowed the native taste off our tongues. In Sussex, a big-eared geezer will glare at me in a railway station, saunter over to spew Muppet Head. That is not my name, I say. He informs me that I'm a filthy golly before asking me to leave his country. Two seats over, a mother stays silent, but I find the gawking gaze of her toddler refreshing. A small, squawking voice asking important questions like, Mommy, why is he so brown? And there you have it, right? <laughs> there you have it. Normally when I read that poem, I like to introduce the word Ameribritican um, because I like to take credit in the fact that I coined that word. <laughs> <laughs> And so, in doing so, I, I like to, I always make up a definition, new definition for mm. it every time. But I think more consistently, I've been kind of defining it as someone who belongs in two places at once, 
but is made to feel like they don't belong anywhere. And Ouch, yeah. Yeah? yeah. Does that resonate? Yeah, it does. Yeah. So in, in pairing those two, um, those two poems, the two parts of the poems together, one in Kansas and one in Sussex, I really wanted to come through with the, the understanding that you know it's it's possible to be in two places and belong in those two places and be treated much the same. Be treated much the same. I mean, there is a national delusion mm. that America has a different race problem vis-a-vis -vis black people than does Britain. But as Ameribritic Ken makes clear, it's much the same, right? It's a yeah. it's a racism that invades, that is offensive, that takes up space, that interrupts. And it's harmful, it's dangerous. Mm. Um, I, I do agree that yeah, maybe, maybe the two present racism in different ways, but the impact is what's most important. Sure. And the impact, you know, the outcomes of it are very much the same. Um, and for me personally, I think a lot of the poems that I present in this book, Black Cotton, um, the outcomes for me have been internalized racism. And it's been me trying to negotiate what it means to actually celebrate myself as a, as a black queer person whilst have, having those reinforced messages that I am somehow less than. Well, and there is no mention of queer in these two poems. No, Or in not. much of your work. No. Which I find fascinating there's and instructive. There are hints. I mean, like at the end of um, Ameribrita Ken part two, Two seats over a mother's day silent, but I find the gawking gaze of her toddler refreshing, mm -hmm. a small squawking voice asking important questions like, mommy, why is he so brown? Yeah. And unless the person reading the poem knows that you are non-binary, mm -hmm. that is not a reference to queerness, No. right? It's and I think that's the point about queer black lives that we try to get across sometimes is that Hanif Abdurraqib, a poet, a Muslim, black Muslim poet in the US, we don't know his sexuality, I'm presuming he's straight, but he writes about the same issues that queer black poets write about, and there is no mention of sexuality. There is no sp specific mention of gender, but yet we're constantly asked to talk about our lives through the lens of a queerness. Yeah. I mean, I do it on busy, <laughs> right? I just realized that. I'm like, fuck, I do that on busy. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm trying to get us to, to look at our lives in this very specific lens, but actually, is the lens any more than a black one? When you say that, is the lens any more than a black one? What do you mean by that exactly? Sorry. <laughs> I don't know, it just came out. Okay. <laughs> because I oftentimes feel like I'm presenting um, my art from, from a black person notice, noticing that there is a white gaze. And so a lot of times I feel like I filter, I filter what I want to express because I am aware that I might be treading on toes. But on the, on the back burner of that, I'm also like, well, I want to make people uncomfortable. I want to make them feel. I want to mm. make, get into their feelings. Well, why should I feel this alone? Right. <laughs> right? Yeah. Right. Why should I carry this I alone? I want to drag them through the mud with me and be mm. like, this is what it feels like to be dragged through the mud, you know, so that they know what it's like to experience that kind of trauma. And I guess I mean, is, is black always already queer? Mm. We are queering the space by being in this space, yeah. whether or not people know that we're queer because yeah. we are black in this space first. Yeah. And so I find this, this conversation that we have with each other that I had when reading your work, when thinking about Hanif, and I was like, shit. Like, I don't know the answer, right? Like, it's an unanswered question that I have or something I'm thinking about, which is where does the queerness, where is the queerness in this conversation about blackness? Is blackness not always already queer? Ooh. I think blackness is always inherently queer. 
especially, well, that, I take it back. I don't think that. I only think it within the perspective of white spaces. So like if we went to, oh, if we went back to the homelands of Africa, are we <laughs> queer? No, we're just like everybody else. Mm. But we have like white experiences. Maybe we are still queer there. I don't know. Right, but we're too far. <laughs> but like here, obviously, like yeah, we're we're we we bring the diversity to this LGBT community, right? Mm. One aspect of it, right? Because yeah. diversity often always always reads as black or brown, right? When actually it's disability, it's age, it's true gender identity, it's all sorts. Yeah, but diversity is is black for all intents and purposes. Mm-hmm. Especially the visibly black. Mm. Fair. Yeah. Mm. I feel this like happens a lot on the show. We're just wait. <laughs> we're just getting kind of like getting into our brains and be like, huh? We need to dissect that a little bit more. How do we do that now? Well, I think it's important <laughs> that I think there can be an assumption. You let me know what you think, but there can be an assumption. I think that black people have arrived or are born knowing everything there is to know about blackness or queerness and blackness, or that life experience automatically imbues us with the language. Mm you know, to, to share a space together and negotiate that space. But actually with Busy, I'm trying to show that we're having these conversations together too, oh, right? So when a white yeah. person's like, I don't know the answer to that. Uh-huh. I'm like, neither do any of us, yeah. but we're finding out. I think something that people oftentimes forget is that, you know, the black experience in quotation marks doesn't really exist. Like everyone's experience as a black individual is different. So even though we come up here, mm. um, we're here in England with American voices, looking brown as hell, yeah. queer as fuck. But like our experiences are completely different yes. from each other, right? I grew up in a very white community. I understand you grew up in Atlanta with mm. you know, lots of queer black people. Oh, I'm so jealous. But I, I grew up in a white community, mostly Trump supporters there now. You know, and I, I very much felt like the minority within a minority within a minority group. Mm. Um, mostly because I didn't want to out myself. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Outing my past. <laughs> um, in one of your earlier poems in this book, you, talking, you talk about shedding your skin and more broadly about um, being mad at your mother for the skin that she gave you. Can you talk to us about that? Ooh, okay. Um, I think those poems, the moments I wrote about that in this, in this book, came about when I found out that my sister was pregnant and that she was going to have a little brown baby. And my mother was so thrilled. And she's like, why can't you be like your sister? I'm like, because I don't want to have children. I don't want to bring a child into this world knowing that they're going to face similar discrimination to myself. Even if I have you know, a child by a white man, it's still going to be a black kid. And I don't, I don't think that people should be, I, I don't want to bring someone into the world knowing that. And so that made me understand a little bit more to the resentment, the bitterness that I have for my own mother for bringing me into this world without my consent. Because um, she knew that I was going to be even darker than her. And uh, so yeah, I have a lot of, I, have, I, still, I, guess I, I guess I still carry a lot of resentment and hostility about that. 
But again, that goes back to internalized racism that I'm tackling. And I'm very open to calling it that because I feel like, especially, you know, white people, sorry guys, but I feel like you guys have a very difficult time accepting the fact that we live in a society that is founded on racist ideas. And, and so when people point out, hey, that comment was racist, hey, that action was racist, oftentimes you get the defensive reaction mm-hmm. from that. And I want to I kind of break that stigma by acknowledging that even as a black person, I have very similar um, ideas about, about you know, whiteness and bl- about blackness, and it's not right. Um, and I don't know where I was going with that comment, but... <laughs> But yeah, I guess what I'm trying to say is that I, I held a lot of resentment towards my mother for the wrong reasons. It was, had nothing to do with her as an individual. It had everything to do with her bringing in a brown baby myself into this world. And I just thought that wouldn't be right. I, I, think, that's, I think that's harsh in lots of ways. That's more than internalized racism, isn't it? I mean, that's an existential. It's a crisis. <laughs> Is that what you're going to say? Sorry, I interrupted you. It's just existential in its scope, right? <laughs> Why am I here? Mm. Yeah. Should I, should I read Misad? I think you should. Yeah. The, one of the poems that I was just referring to was misogynoir. Mm. Um, the word misogynoir, it, it means misogyny, meaning the hatred of the feminine body. But noir, being French, I believe, comes from the word black. So it's a very specific type of oppression that happens to people that are kind of on that borderline of blackness and femininity. Um, I'm sure, yes, you can hear from my voice and those people that can see me. I definitely present myself as a black woman, even though I identify as non-binary. And so there's also elements of misogyny that I'm also trying to tackle. And, And that's what this poem's about. Here we go. It's called Misogynoir. One, mama is in my head these days, whistling between my front two teeth, a twister siren in the springtime, a cicada symphony of Armageddon. Two, I think I'm I'm thinking about moving out, mama, I say when she sings. I feel like no one should have to live here, in this body, I mean. No one should have to spend their years in this unfit coffin. Mama, my body is a burial suit. They cut me out of you shivering, trembling like a baby rattle, a bald-headed and brown, a color of, disres- of disrepute. Mama, they think that I'm a prostitute and my body is a rental suit, a costume, a scream. Three, maybe Mama knows that I'd rather burn my leather and wear it another day for her. Would rather slice the skin in slivers, rip off my flesh like a grapefruit peel, like a tight, wet jumper, leave it piled up in the corner of some bloody street for the flies to lay their eggs, to stink in the ditches like gutter muck, like roadkill, like shit. Mama knows I'm tired. Mama knows I am choking. Mama knows I'm drowning in a world of womanhood and whiteness where nobody will rescue me, and Mama, my very own Mama, won't rescue me. Four. Mama is in my hips, 
Mama is in the harmony. Mama is a bug bite. Mama is in the melody. Mama is the moonshine. Mama is a pinch that twists when I fall asleep in church. Mama is a trombone. Mama is a tambourine. Mama is manna. Mama is melanin. Mama is a loaded gun. Five. My daddy was a songbird. My sister was a chigger bug. And mama, whoo, she was a cicada. But you are, you are you. You are the entire golden prairie, screaming up at all them stars, just like me, screaming up at my mama for making me look so pretty and brown. But you should just come out and be happy. I know, right? Get over it. <laughs> like, do you see? I, it's one of the things, you know, Philip Schofield, bless him, just came out yesterday. And there is, there isn't a lot of nuance I'm seeing around the conversation about his coming out. Um, although Sir Ian McKellen, again, bless him, an icon. Um, he's, never, he's never regretted it. No one never met anyone who's ever regretted it. But I find, I do take issue with this idea that coming out is the, is the apex of our queer experience because it can't be. She's trying to get out of her skin. And that has, that's racial, that's not queer. So I don't understand how being queer solves that problem. And I don't understand how that limited conversation that we have around coming out, around being queer at all, helps solve that problem, that, that need to get out of your skin, your black skin. I don't think there is anything that really solves that problem apart from acknowledging that there is a problem and picking at that you know, piece by piece. Mm. Um, I don't even know if therapy really helps. You have to do your own internal therapy, it seems like, because like, who do you turn to for this kind of problem? Who do no. you turn to? <laughs> Working on it. Um, no, books. Uh, books, the show, you, people like you, mm. poetry like yours. Yeah, it lit me on fire. And what, I think one of the things that is most beautiful about what you've done, and that I think is part of the healing process, is there is a reminder of the quotidian. There is, you know, when we think about history, we think about the grandiose. Mm. History is a collection of grandiose moments. Mm -hmm. Napoleon, someone was talking about earlier, Oscar Wilde, Quentin Crisp, these moments after moments after moments that are all big. Right. But what about those like small, intimate moments that make up a life? Like, we lose those in a history, mm -hmm. in our storytelling. But that, those are things that are passed down in a black oral tradition, for example, right? Right. A tradition that becomes busy being black. Mm. And so I like that. Will you read Summer of Seven? Yeah, yeah, I will. She was like, why do you like that one? They were like, why do you like that one? <laughs> yeah, I didn't understand why you liked that one, because I, I was just one I kind of stuck into the book and thought, eh, that's a little bit of me. A little snapshot of who I used to be. Fun fact about Summer of Seven. Yes. Uh, that was the summer I was at university, and it was a really, really hot summer. Um, and I just refused to wear shoes for that summer, just because I wanted Wild. to be different. Yeah. Feral. I was a rebel. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember I burned the skin off the, my feet because it was so hot outside. All right, fun fact. Here we go to the, the poem. Remember when we spent our whole damn lives walking barefoot down the street to buy a couple of burritos? Spent a century eating them and reflected on the afterlife. 
You thought I would die first because I am black and queer and statistics factor bigotry. As I sucked at the guacamole stain on my shirt, I thought you could be right. <laughs> Bravo. And I was like, yes, this is it. It is that, it is that negotiation, it is that conversation, as simple as that, between you can't even eat a burrito. No. You can't eat a burrito without negotiating death mm -hmm. and that conversation with death. That's a very black experience. Yeah. And, and going back to like a white privilege, I think it's a privilege that you don't have to think about it. Yeah, go, uh, an avocado can be an avocado. Right? It's not the last one. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> it's not death. <laughs> I, I find it shocking that you really liked that poem too. Mm -hmm. I'm like, yeah. I mean, I, I, I tried to highlight most of them. I, I just, you know, Untitled 2. This poem is just a novel squeezed into the, into the tiny back pocket of a god. Yeah. That's probably one of my shortest poems. It's beautiful. <laughs> it is a world. Yeah. And so I think that there, you know, how do you get through it? I think that what is, what you've done here, and if it's just, I don't know how anyone else has reacted with this work. I know how I have. And how I've immediately felt like, ah, oh, this is part of, this is part of the, part of the stuff mm -hmm. that we gather around us as part of this healing process. Because there is no template for healing. Really, no. right? There isn't, there isn't one way that works for everybody. And as we try to cobble together a life amidst, I don't know, the shit, I feel like this, is, this has quickly become like one of those, just in the, yeah, beautiful. I'm really grateful for it and for you. Well, I'm just, I feel very lucky that you've had an opportunity to read this because I, I don't get to surround myself by, well, not just black, queer people, but black queer originally from America kind of people. Um, so seeing as like this book really ties in the two different nations together mm. from our perspective, it was really good to hear your feedback on it because normally I present this work to a, a mostly white British audience right. who will get a lot of th things that I'm saying, but it may not hit them the same way that I think you have absorbed it. So it, it means a lot to me that you've, you've had the opportunity to read it and enjoy it. So one of the questions I have, I think that as young queer black people, um, we may learn that our histories, our stories, and thus our lives don't really matter if we don't see them accounted for within dominant narratives. And I, I appreciate and respect there's certainly a push um, to kind of wedge black people back into the table retrospectively. Um, but we have to kind of make peace with the fact that it will not be often that we are in spaces like this and that that has to be okay. And so I, I guess I would like to hear from you what you would tell yourself now, knowing what you know about what you've learned about yourself and your histories. <laughs> Can you tell I did not prepare that question? But it was, does that make sense? Well, like, what would I tell myself in the past? What would you tell, your, yeah, what would you tell other young queer people about about their histories that you've learned is probably a better question. About our, about our collective histories. Actually, let's start that again. Okay. I was gonna answer. Fine. Okay, it was just, it's gonna be a rambling too. Go. Is that okay? Yeah, yeah, of okay. course. Uh, I was just gonna say something about like, I would tell the, my younger self to not worry so much about learning about specific people, <laughs> to to embrace, the com embrace communities that are existing and thriving today. Um, 
I guess it kind of goes back to me telling you about like how we are creating history just by being ourselves and being here and being exposed and whatever. And so I guess in a sense, I would be telling myself, go and explore those communities, go explore and find people like yourself because whoever is living today is going to be history. So why not study them now while they're still alive? Um, and maybe that's just like a cop out because I'm sure that like there are ways of learning more about people that you know have lived similar lives but are now deceased. But what's the point of celebrating their lives when, when you could be celebrating the lives of people today that are, are probably going through very similar hardships? Mm. That's my two cents on that. <laughs> yeah, we're here already. We're here already. Yeah. We should be celebrating ourselves. And I, I say that very flippantly, like we should just be celebrating <laughs> ourselves, but obviously that's, that's oh, a journey. <laughs> <laughs> obviously that's a journey in itself and it's hard. It's hard to know how to, how to best do that when you don't have a lesson plan, you don't have you know, people doing it already for you. So like, what does it mean to celebrate black queerness? How, how does anyone do that? Um, I kind of, I wish I had an elder uh, or a mentor in my life to, to do that for me instead of just kind of pretending like I'm my own elder or mentor. Which at once can be super empowering, right? That these kind of accidental encounters with <laughs> a past you, mm. right? Like a James Baldwin or Bride Rustin or Audre Lorde or, uh, you know, all these kind of really well-known people. Mm. But I, I, I don't know how they lived their daily lives. And I think that's what I'm searching for at the moment. It's like, how did, like, what, did, what conversations were you having with yourself that weren't a book? Mm. Right? I don't know. I just, I, that's part of the history that I find frustrating is that it, it's hard to find these nuggets without going through, like, the entire back catalog and, and finding what works for you. I don't know. Maybe, that's, maybe it's me trying to be lazy about it. No, I don't think it's you trying to be lazy at all. I want what white people have, right? I just want like little quotes everywhere that said, <laughs> do this next. We both want what white people have. We both want to have like our, our own history. We, well, we, we, we do. want to know where we come from. Yeah. That's it. We want to have the knowledge of it. And I think that's something that we're definitely lacking. One that we're accumulating. Before. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Because I guess it's not all from a place of loss, right? Like we have a rich history. And it's the encountering of that history that, I, that is super important. Mm -hmm. I think my question is about not, not getting run down or beleaguered or bereft when you don't immediately encounter that history. Yes, it should be there for you to right. find, right. but it might not be. And you, how do you become okay with that journey that it's always gonna be one of longing and searching and exploring and it's never gonna be over really? funny you pointed it that way because I actually I wrote a poem it's not in this book but I wrote a poem about my lost history on my my paternal side of the family who are Native Americans and how we like we completely we don't have the storytelling part of our of our family mm. it's been lost through to Christianity and just trying to assimilate into you know a, a very American whitewashed society and so I've written a poem not in this book but it it, it kind of, it makes up that story. It fills in the gaps from what I know of my, my family. Um, and it's like, it's kind of, it's making up stories about my grandmother and who she used to be and why she died. Mm. And like, and you know, the things that she was afraid of and passionate about. You kind of have to spill it in and pretend like you know, like you're, like you're kind of um, communicating. Yeah. You're communicating with your ancestors somehow. 
like they're, they're passing on their legacy in your dreams or somehow, you know? Like I, I kind of just pretend like I know all, the, all their history already. Because like, in a way, isn't trauma passed down to us through our DNA? Yes. You know? Trauma lodges in the body. It yeah. lodges in the body. So why, why not the opposite? Like why not happy experiences as well? Yes. Right? Why, why can't we just pretend like, <laughs> not pretend, but like actually know that our, our ancestors' joy lives within inside of us. Mm. The same way that their trauma does. And their wisdom. And their wisdom, that's right. Yeah, fair. Yeah. That's what Naha moment is, right? It's ancestral. When you go, oh, of course. It's ancestral wisdom, I think. Ah. When someone says something, you go, I knew that. Yeah. 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 That's ancestral wisdom, I think. I like to think that my past lives are actually my ancestors. Yes. And my muses. You know? They're the, they're the, the reason why I write. They're the reason why I create and perform. You got that look on your face, like... <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to stop like myself from going wise overboard. Like, I something No. I'm trying to stop myself from going overboard. Because we have only limited time. Oh, do we? Okay. So we have to draw to a close. Okay. <laughs> how are we going to end this then? Well, I had an idea of how we would, and now I don't want to do that anymore. Oh. Oh. Yeah. No, because it doesn't feel sufficient enough. Okay. Do you want it to be hard hitting? What, what, what do you no, want? No, I want it to be C. <laughs> you want it to I want it to be your decision and not mine. Okay. That's what I'd like. Give me choices. No. Oh, oh come on. I'm not really good at decisions. <laughs> no. Let the ancestors choose. How we and I do have one question though to end on. Okay. And then I think you should choose how to close that afterwards, whether it's with a poem or a word or a you can dance, it won't show up on the audio, but that's fine. Um, I ask all my guests the same question. What do you hope for? I should have prepared for that. Because I knew that you asked that question. Every single guest. What do I hope for? I suppose I hope for peace, internal peace. I'm going to be selfish. I don't care about world peace at this point. I feel like the world is kind of beyond helping. Um, that's not to say that I, I don't want to, that's not to say that I want to cause more damage to it, but I want to heal myself from within and then radiate that outwards. That's my answer. That's a really good point there. Which is <laughs> <laughs> that the selfishness is a great thing to embrace as a black person. Mm. Right? That it is okay to prioritize yourself and your healing. It's not just okay, it's necessary. Because mm. who else is going to do it, you know? I don't know anyone else. Even my, my own family members, my own mama is not going to prioritize me. So I've got to do it. I've got to put that work in. Ugh, and it's so hard. It's so hard. I do know how I understand. Oh. Marginal. Ah, Okay. So, Marginal mm -hmm. um, is actually a poem that's on the flap of the book. Uh, it's exploring the idea of marginalization within communities and groups of people, but also how margins are in all the pages that we read on the books, mm -hmm. and how they're just the blank spaces that we try to ignore. Marginal. We are the ones you don't see in magazines. We do not have perfect smiles that lodge pearls for teeth. Some heavenly gateway bursting with lights. Not us. Our eyelids are thin but sharp. 
sometimes when we take up space, it's just easier to decide we're not even there in the background doing just about nothing more than existing. So we plaster our own images around the matrix and needed reminder, look, see these remnants, a palimpsest of empty joy. We often find ourselves tucked beneath covers of back jackets like lovable characters who dance and die and we slightly shift aside should anyone notice we are still here. C Sharp is a multi-award-winning poet based in the south of England. You'll find links to their work in the show notes. Busy Being Black is the podcast exploring how we live in the fullness of our queer black lives. Thank you to our partners, UK Black Pride and Blackout UK, and to you, the listeners. Remember this, your support doesn't cost any money. Retweets, shares, ratings, and reviews all help, so please keep the support coming. Finally, thank you to Anthony Giles, a queer black Grammy-nominated producer based in New York City, for these bomb-ass Busy Being Black beats. Ashe. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.